You're listening to Brave New Words. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. I'm Dal. I'm still producer Al. So, the show is presented to you by the courtesy of Starburst Magazine, The Wonky Spanner, and also FabRadioInternational.com. Uh, thank you to all of those people who help make this all happen. Um, you can find us on the Twitters, at Radio Bookworm. Um, just tweet us, at Radio Bookworm. We love to be tweeted at... Um, We're technically on Instagram. We are on Instagram. Uh, we are possibly also etched into your mind on some sort of level. Anyway, on today's show, clearly I'm being a bit weird. Uh, to say that Jeff Newman is a talented author is like saying Neil Armstrong has travelled a bit. That was from some clever chap in Starburst magazine, not me. Um, <laughs> was it actually not you? It actually not you. Oh. Well, we'll be reviewing A Man of Shadows. Um, from Jeff Noon. If you know who Jeff Noon is, you're like, oh, Jeff Noon. Uh, if you don't know who Jeff Noon is, you should do. He's probably one of the biggest and most interesting postmodern, postmodern, is that a word we can use? Yeah, whatever. Weird fiction uh, writers of this of this current generation. Uh, he's great. He wrote Vert, which is a book that lots of people read, lots more people didn't understand. Um, mm. And I really like He also wrote Automated Alice, which is a favourite of mine. But before we do any of that, a jingle. This, this is Fabrian International. Ooh, Ooh, that was a nice jingle. Lovely jingle. If you want your jingle on the show, get in touch with us. Uh, the best way to get in touch with uh, you can either get in touch with me at ed.fortune at starbursmagazine.com or you can tweet us. Get in touch, we'll, we might jingle you if you want to be jingled, especially if you have a thing that needs jingling. So, uh, before we talk about Jeff Noon, um, let's talk about the Clark Awards, which happened recently. Uh, the, the old format of the show we used to do like book news and we used to be mm. like oh yes book news we'll do book news book news book news book news is really slow and kind of drifts along so it's been a while since the Clark Awards were announced by the time you listen to the show um, to be honest but let's talk about the Clarks so the list of potential winners for the Clarks was very exciting this year and I was very excited do you remember a while ago when we reviewed After Atlas and I was all like, I reckon After Atlas is going to go get nominated for a Clark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got nominated for a Clark. Cause, yeah, I'm clever. Yeah. Uh, a Close and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers was also up for it. Nine Fox Scambit by Yoon Ha Lee, which we really liked. Yeah. Spaceships uh, was up for it. Central Station by Yavi Tidar was up for it as well. That was, I think, an indie press, new contrast one, if memory serves. And Occupy Me by Tricia Sullivan was also up. So all very good, great recommendations list. Um, The one is the one I haven't mentioned, who won it, was The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Okay. So The Underground Railroad is one of those ones where you'll look at the the kind of premise and go, how did that win a science fiction award? And it kind of needs a bit of an explanation. Um, Yeah, the name suggests other things to me. Yeah. No, you're right. It's exactly what you think it is. Okay. So, Cora is a slave on, the, on a cotton plantation uh, in Georgia. Um, life is hell for all the slaves, but especially bad for Cora, an outcast even among her own fellow Africans. She's coming into uh, womanhood uh, where even greater, greater pain awaits. When Caesar, a recent arrival from Virginia, tells her about the Underground Railroad, they decide to take a terrifying risk and escape. However, this is not. The Underground Railroad isn't a metaphor in this novel. Okay. It's engineers and conductors have a secret network of tracks and tunnels, and then it gets stranger. Um, And what we actually have is we have a series of following following flights of escape and explorations and stuff, and it drifts into alternate realities pretty much from the get-go. Okay. And what Colson Whitehead does is he creates this saga about um, American history and also potential historical changes from the point of view of someone escaping slavery. Okay. Mm. So it's a huge kind of. It's a. I hesitate to use the word mes- metafiction because it sounds like terribly clever when you say metafiction, but it's a metafiction science fiction novel about which uses the. Uh, which uses an escaping slave 
as our central protagonist to talk about the, the whole ball of wax rather than their individual story, thus mm. using an alternate reality sci-fi premise to bring that all in. Yeah, I'm okay. told it's incredibly clever. I've not gotten around to finishing it. So uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people will have read it and will probably do it as a as a one that one all will have read or a bunch of us will have read so we can talk about it. We'll, to be honest, I think we'll probably come back to it maybe in a year's time. Okay. Um, because it's not as if it needs our help, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> Whereas you should really read Nine Fox Gambit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, okay, I totally see why that w- would win. Mm. Uh, it slightly annoys me that it's the only one I hadn't read. <laughs> it's just like, it's the only one I hadn't read, and all the rest of them were, were marvellous. Mm. I can see why it's, it's like after the fact it's very tempting to sit there and go I can see why the rest of them lost you know but you know I kind of after Atlas has some very clever ideas um, weirdly it does also it, it, it does talk about slavery but it's not about slavery okay um, the main character is essentially he's got all sorts of stuff implanted into his head by super science um, to make him a perfect detective which also means that he's never his own person. He's constantly being monitored by the people who essentially own the software in his head. Mm. So he's um, essentially an indentured servant um, to explain his education. It's the only way he can get out. Um, but it's also an incredibly dark and depressing novel about the the world ending. I wouldn't say the end of the world, but it's set in a world yeah. that's in its twilight. Um, Nine, Fox, Nine Fox Gambit is just flipping clever piece of sci you, you know when you watch a, like a like a chewy sci-fi movie mm. and you're like I wish it had more spaceships and explosions in it <laughs> Nine Fox Gambit is a chewy sci-fi novel with more spaceships and explosions in it and if you could somehow make that into a movie could you imagine like could you imagine if you could perfectly fuse uh, The Force Awakens with, 2000, with 2001 Amazing. You know, if you oh, gravity, gravity is a good example of a chewy sci-fi movie. It's got it's rubbish bits, but you know what I'm saying. It's got it's got a nice bit of The Martian is a better example actually. The Martian's okay. a really good example. Yeah, so you could take The Martian and then you could take The Force Awakens and then make them have like a weird sci-fi baby. It wouldn't be nothing like Nine Fox Gambit, but you'd be in the right sort of maternity ward. You'd be like getting in <laughs> sort of the correct yeah. direction. It was um, like it, the correct sort of feeling, but not the same story uh, Close and Common Orbit is about transgender robots in space uh, take the crew of Serenity make one of the, make Alan Tudyk's character a robot um, have them change their identity halfway through in season 3 which doesn't exist because when it was uh, Firefly was cancelled uh, and you've got a Close and Common Orbit that's a terrible description but it'll they've do. recently announced there are transgender transformers they always well, okay. have been yes but Okay, some people have recently made a fuss about it. Sorry. Some people have recently made a fuss about it. Yeah, let's carry on. They always have it. Just that. But yes, and as you say, they're called Transformers. Yes. I was going to annoy somebody somewhere. Oh, absolutely. That's why it's recently made a fuss, but it's been there for ages. Yeah. It's been part of the Transformers canon for uh, absolutely ages, but then Megatron's been the Transformers canon for much longer. Ah! Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening? Um... So oh, yes, Central Station before the show started. Central <laughs> Station by Lavi Tida. I, I love Lavi Tida. I occasionally cosplay as Lavi Tida um, <laughs> by just wearing a hoodie. Um, uh, worldwide destroyers left quarter of a million people in, uh, at the foot of a space station. Cultures collide in real life and virtual reality. It's Lavi Tida. He will take a bunch of ideas, uh, mush them together, make them work, mm. and then make you laugh and make you sad at the same time because he's Lavi and he's a genius. Um, He's also very mean to steampunks. Well done. Um, and Occupy Me by Trisha Sullivan um, is the one with angels and transdimensional crossing stuff that we all looked at and went, oh. I have it on my shelf. I haven't read it yet. We'll do it on the show at some point. We'll do yeah. Central Station as well at some point. Um, it looked exciting. It did. Um, I You see, this is it. I had not read enough of Underground World to, to say... But I wonder, David Hutchinson has been up for a clock and he does interesting thought-provoking stuff that has alternate realities, alternate dimensions and that sort of thing in it. 
and you know Dave didn't win for a very long time anything mm-hmm. and I'm just sitting there thinking is 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 it a thing now has that duck been broken how subtle can you be with your sci-fi okay but it's also the Clark Awards they occasionally they like to surprise you on the other hand but the other hand Underground Railroad's going to win everything pretty much everything it's been nominated for it's got Pulitzer already wow. uh, it's probably going to win the book game it's won the Clark well, if you see what I'm saying, I'm not I'm not that excited by it simply because it's not a book that will benefit from a Clark win, but then that's not what the award should be about. Yeah, the, the award should go to the book they feel deserves it. It's just that when it comes to more independent-based things in your head, you're like, but you could help someone. Um, so, yeah, I see what you mean, but you're correct, obviously, yeah. The award should go to the award should go to but the, mo- the, the most indie book on there is Central Station by Lavitila and Lavitila does not need <laughs> you know d- he doesn't need any help he's bloody brilliant and will continue to be bloody brilliant for you know decades to come and he's won stuff he'll continue to win stuff you know not that, not that. I, think, I think also Colson Whitehead's ex- acceptance was like oh oh thank you rather than you know he didn't seem terribly <laughs> terribly excited nor surprised he was just like here's another award I keep winning awards there we go sort of thing but so I'm tempted now to build it like a cardboard TARDIS put it somewhere random and fill it full of copies of Fifty Shades of Grey we are aware that's a problem stop being tempted we are aware that's a problem yeah <laughs> yes that is a problem there's, there's a support two, groups I, two, I don't know what the, something anonymous would be but yes there's something um, you're, no, you're one of those no there's too many copies of Fifty Shades of Grey in the world yeah no. No. charity shops have real problems don't they charity shops are f- the back rooms are full of copies of Fifty Shades wasn't there somebody who made a, a charity shop somewhere who made a desk out of the copies of Fifty Shades yes. that they had brilliant uh, and a chair as well mm. I seem to recall um, but yes and also I've seen a sign made out of copies of Fifty Shades of the Grey where they've turned it into papier-mâché and the papier-mâché sign says do not give us any more copies of Fifty Shades of Grey. And you can see that it's clearly been made out of copies of Fifty, 50 Shades, Shades of Grey. Um, but yes, because lots of people bought it in their droves and then as soon as they read it, went, I don't want this in my it's house. It's really odd, though, that that's not something that's ever been a problem before. Because if the places where you take books you no longer want doesn't want a book... Because recycling books, even recycling them, feels wrong, doesn't it? Like it feels odd to throw away a book. It's not that's not normal. We've but what men- could you do then? We've mentioned this before. Working in the, it's an interesting kind of test, I suppose, of publishing industry chops, or I don't know what you'd call it, kudos. Mm. Of so, I have sat in a bookshop, tearing the covers of novels. To, for, for returns, yeah, because you have to do it, mm. and it's like it's part of the job. Tear, bin, tear, bin. I, I've so been in a bookshop just in time to save a few books from that fate. But uh, at which point that person was naughty. But anyway, but that yeah, you know, you, you, it's kind of part of the job. And when you get lots of books coming into your house, or uh, like we're sitting in part of the book nook here, here, and if we go down that corridor and turn left. We'll save the rooms of torn books because they are because they are a disposable medium at the end of the day. But they're a disposable medium that we treasure and mm. we love. So, what is the purpose of tearing the books? So you take the cover off. You send you can send the covers in it, so you can't sell it again. I'm re- I'm still confused as to to right it's what's... returns. So you've right so you, right so you haven't sold the book. Okay. The publisher doesn't want the book back because you can't sell it. Okay. So you throw it in the recycle. You need to prove that you've sold the book. So you need to prove that you haven't sold the book. Okay. So you've got the covers. So you send them back the covers. Yeah, so rather than so sending you... them the weight of the, all of the book, the whole book, you'd only send them back the back. Why cover. do you have to send them back anything? Um, it's essentially, you don't. You normally just fill in the thing. You have to basically prove that you've, just, you've made them unfit for sale. Oh, okay. You can't sell them. You can't turn right. You can't because there's that small print, isn't there? That this can't be resold um, without the original cover. Yeah, but I still, I still right, don't so really understand why you can't. Why, why are you saying that so far? I haven't been able to sell it. 
But why does not being able to sell it so far mean then okay, you so cannot sell it? I, so I say I run a small um, retail outlet. Say we're a... I'll use, I'll use a slightly off example. Say we're a games workshop. Okay. So we have a book section. Mm-hmm. We have shelf space for our toys, mm-hmm. for our toys, um, for our other toys, for our paints, and our book section. Yeah. Um, we can't sell those books. We've not been able to sell those books. We want to send them back to the publisher so we can get some money back and then get new books that okay. we can sell. We don't have any shelf space. So I can either have 20, 20 copies of Vagaries of the Space Marines that no one cares about, mm-hmm. or I can sell the new exciting Gaunt's Ghosts Go to the Toilet novel that everyone wants to read this week. Well, I don't have any shelf space, so I need to get rid of those books, so I want to send them back to the publisher. So I destroy them, says to the publisher, we've not been able to sell them, they go, have you destroyed them? I say, yes, I have, definitely, absolutely, hand on heart. I haven't just given them to my mates, honest. Um, and then they send me some new books. Okay. And then I can afford, as a retailer, to do that. If I got this wrong, <laughs> at Radio Bookworm, yeah. but that's pretty much how it works. So is there kind of like a refund involved? Yes. Or, right, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. I think so, that's I mean, why I was confused. I was like, but you've already surely paid for said books and right that makes more sense okay it's it's so so then then they get recycled and then it goes through right. um it's basically as far as a, it's the weirdest thing about the time and age that we're in mm-hmm. we're in the biggest age of burning books yeah <laughs> it sounds awful but it's not it's it not awful true. at all it's amazing because the reason we're in the biggest age of burning, burning books is because they are most, they're the most books ever produced ever in the history of humanity. Ever, 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 ever. Which means we have no room for mm. so many That's books. a lot of trees being wasted. I was about to say, like, rather than burning the books, do they recycle the books? Or do they only make books out of non-recycled FSC paper? So, new books are recycled. Okay. Library books, mm-hmm. if they can be recycled, they are. But lots of places have a public safety policy burning them because they've been handed around by literally hundreds of people don't libraries sell off their stock wholesale if they're allowed to buy their bylaws yeah i have had um a number of uh pre-used purchases off amazon in the last year from resellers who are quite open on their website that they buy up library stock that they no longer need and it's either public libraries or most usually because i'm buying relatively specialist stuff university libraries so i've had quite a bit of stuff in the last year from uh, a university in london that used to do a large number of courses that it now no longer offers at all and literally these resellers turn up with a van back and reverse up to the library door the library shoves the books in they the, the reseller then sells them on, and the library gets some of that money back in order to buy new stock. Mm. It, it won't go far nowadays, though. I remember like academic books are insane. My considering I graduated just over ten years ago, my course books used to cost between forty to sixty pounds. Yeah. yeah, like I envisage the money you're going to get for a van worth of mm. not wanted books. I, is it cover yeah, and I suspect actually the stuff I'm buying isn't massively core textbooks, but just other stuff they had related to the subject area on the shelves, just in case. Yeah, so, so like when I did when I did my undergraduate degree, it was like here is the list of twelve books you have to have for your core text. So you know, only going to refer to one paragraph in one chapter of one of them once for two minutes in a lecture, but you still have to spend fifty quid on the book. Mm-hmm. But then they had you know reams and reams of shelves filled of stuff that was related to the subject matter that you might want to read if you were looking into it more and perhaps some of those books are cited in the core text in their bibliography so there's an entire sub-industry of the publishing industry that buys remainder books mm. so one of the options for your for, for the books that are about to be destroyed is that the remainders of the libraries and that ran through things like amazon mm-hmm. so an entire library closes down they sell their their stock to a company that goes into a conveyor goes through it gets is binned 
scanned, mm-hmm. put, on a, put on a shelf on an automated shelf stacking system, and then it sits there for potentially years. Um, until someone goes online and goes, 29p for vagaries of the Space Marines, bargain! And then they, they pay their 29p plus postage, so it's about a pound. Uh, and all their postage on Amazon is at least £2.80. Right, and suddenly you have your copy of vagaries of the Space Marine. Um, it's one of those ones that's kind of really fascinating because there's been books I can't think of any actual examples but there's been books that have gone out of print and then the author's gone off to do something more interesting or that book suddenly become relevant because something has happened yeah. and then people have scrabbled around for the book and it's been but that that service of you know somebody turns up with a van reverses up to the library door takes all their stock away and puts it online to sell is really good if you're looking for something from 1979. But importantly... That, that the content bo- of which is still interesting. But importantly, that book has already been paid for. Yeah. And the author has, authors and creators have already been paid. Yeah. After that point, you can do whatever the heck you want. That's what libraries. Libraries have already paid for their books. You know whatever the heck you want. Um, half the books that live in the book nook have a little note on them. Hang on. I'll, I'll, I'll just grab this one and just read it out. Uncorrected proof. Never, ever, ever for sale. The text is not final, so if you wish to quote the references, please contact us, uh, contact us first. Never, ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Never, ever. No. Don't. Please don't. So no. you, yeah. But I think that no one of the joys of no ARCs as well is they're designed to fall apart, aren't they? Like, they desperately want you to buy those books. I, I, I... The, the joy of the, of the X stock thing as well is that if, like me, like I have a few Agatha Christie books and I've got a thing now about buying them all of the same, um, in mm. the same editions with the same cover art on and you can do that now. So you can go online and you can find the one, that you know, the next book you want to buy that's got the same version, same series of version of cover art on it. A well so known, shelf looks the same. That's good. A well-known British author whose name will remain nameless because I can't remember. Uh, apparently, a uh, recent signing... Um, someone came up with an arc and went, I've got an arc! And the, um, they went, I had a copy and it fell apart. And he was like, yes, I've, the person has clearly looked after it. And the happy ending is they had two. Aww. And the author was just like, yes, please! Uh, because the cover was different or the art was different yeah. or the other was a, there was a bit in it that had been taken out in the final version. There's that thing with American Gods where the original version of American Gods when it first came out, the version you can buy of American Gods is the, is the author's cut mm-hmm. because the original version he cut like about 10,000 words or something ridiculous. Like mm-hmm. a huge chunk of the book has been removed because the editors were just like, no, it's just a little bit too long. And this bit doesn't really do anything, and then but by the time they came back to because it was a hit, and by the time they, they went back to doing it, the original cut had the, all the files had been lost. No. So, so they paid someone to basically just get a copy of the book and re record it and re type it in. Um, but you know, so the so the final manuscript is there. But the, yeah, but so, that that just can you that poor person. Oh, oh wait, a, here's a word. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> like, having to literally side-by-side side two books. Because 10,000 words, yeah, there will be whole chunks taken out, but a lot of that is going to be sentences. Yeah. Sentences from odd pages. Oh, pain, no. Uh, he, he apparently, uh, Neil, Neil Gaiman paid a professional editor type just to sit there and very carefully go through both versions. Yeah. Because clearly he you know he wanted to add stuff in, but it's, so it's, so it's hard to do director's cuts of novels, is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not nine worlds because uh, obviously the Starburst expenses card um, has uh, we've used it to buy the Greg's pasty, and it was delicious. Um, it's not fair. Starburst are an incredibly supportive organisation and are absolutely lovely. Please don't fire me, Mike. Um, <laughs> But, um, Greg did a survey recently. I saw the results of this, which basically said, "Here is the North and the South as defined by where all the Gregs are." And that that is borne out by my experience of customer service in Gregs's. And like, there's a point going down various motorways because you know, like all motorway mm. service stations now have Gregs. Yeah, and there was a point way. going south down various motorways when the service at service stations just becomes woefully poor because the staff are just like too far south to like appreciate 
so the, yeah, the heritage importance of the Gregs. So for I, a given city, they've said, okay, well, this is the number of Gregs. This yeah, is the Sheffield's number of, screwed. This is the number of people it supports based on the number of Gregs in the city and the population size. And so, basically they've determined that Nottingham is north, but Sheffield is south. So for uh, American listeners, Gregs, <laughs> oh, Gregs are oh. a fast food baker's chain. But not uh, like anything that no. I've seen over there. Because no. there are, like, it's all pasties. It's all pastry-based, isn't Didn't it? Didn't somewhere most... in America recently attempt to invent the sausage roll by wrapping a hot dog in puff pastry and claiming this was an amazing new thing? And we were all like, hands off, mate. England's been there for a decade, for, you know, 100 yeah, years. They claim they've the apple pie. There's, I know, like, pasties are a thing in certain parts of America. Like... Mila Jovovich like allegedly north... loves Greg's. Like she said that she's she sent runners out while they've been filming in the UK to get yeah. her as many cheese and onion pasties as possible. I, she looks like a woman who's never even seen a Greg's pasty. Greg's do um, breakfast rolls, and um, like I'm vegetarian, and the egg one is amazing. It's like these little buttery one egg omelets, but you get like two or three. And it's so good. Like, have you seen I the, love it. And two quid with a hot chocolate. Have Perfect. you seen the footage of the... the, the there's an omelette machine that just makes the... Because you you've got that slightly cheesy omelette that they make. Mm. And it's like it runs uh, it runs parallel, apparently, the sausage roll machine. <laughs> it's just endless, endless... Um, anyway, so for Americans and colonials <laughs> and other English-speaking people who listen to the show who aren't in the UK, Greg's are a chain bakers who create very delicious, very fattening fast food. And it's yeah. typically associated with low-income culture. Is that I, think, see, I, I think, think a lot of the health point. A lot of pastry-based bakers in the UK do tend to be associated with kind of lower-income but hang on, no, no. Where? What's that bit of Newcastle called? Where? Greg's, yeah, that's not working class. That's posh. That's also where one of the first Greggs came from. This is the point I'm making. Well, that no, no. Gosforth has a posh Greggs because it's in the <laughs> northeast. But there were various posh Greggs. Yes, I'm but, saying the northeast is posh. No, what I'm saying is, is that that it's in the northeast, therefore it needs Greggs because oh, okay. that's allowed. But how do you get how do you get a Greg's in Jesmond or Gosforth, which is where rich people live? Well, obviously you you put a bicycle up on the wall and you paint it green mm. and you pipe some nice music into it. It's still Greg's. It's still going to te- <laughs> it's still going to sell sell you what is essentially fat cheese onion more fat and deliciousness yeah. for a quid. But 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 they do have the healthy choice thing. So that katsu bake is like less than five hundred calories or something. It's That's really a nice. Book show. This it's is a book tiny show. though. I know it's a book show. Quick side thing Greg's. They stopped doing the lemon curd donut. And the lemon curd donut was one of my favourite things. Like it was better than a Krispy Kreme and I don't particularly like Krispy Kreme anyway, but the lemon curd Krispy Kreme is fine. The Greg's Krispy Kreme is amazing. The the muffin the double chocolate muffin. With like it's <laughs> chocolate, chocolate chip, and then it's got that like reservoir of like. Yeah, you have to be very careful as a reader who is a big bibliophile and a lover of Greg's. Yeah, no, because puff pastry, gre- puff pastry mm-hmm. not great near no. books anyway, but greasy fingers yeah. near pages is really heartbreaking. Um, you have to be very, very. So I maintain a tea towel at all times. We got here because we were talking about. The Starburst Expenses card, oh, yeah. which I joked was, of course, a Greg. And in fairness, Starburst have sent us many exciting places, including Nine World several times. But we, as a as a indie magazine and as indie reporters and journalists, we have to pick our battles. And let's be honest, we've been to Nine Worlds. Nine Worlds is lovely. It's amazing. We will eventually do some live shows there one of the, in one of these years. But we had to choose. Uh, and also, there was only so much producer Al and there was only so much me and the three years ago I did the Long Kong yeah right so a few years ago they had uh, World Con in London and I did Nine Worlds and it was great and then producer Al went back to work and I stayed in London and I did all the London events for books and I covered them all for the magazine then I did a World Con because didn't some publishers very cleverly arrange stuff on the Monday and the Tuesday yeah. after Nine Worlds but before London started? The, all the week long through. Yeah. So I was essentially, I turned up to Nine Worlds, did Nine Worlds, did a bunch of panels, did a bunch of podcasting things, had an amazing time. And normally at that point I would have a nap for about a day. Uh, but I didn't. I did events. And then I did Worldcon. And then I slept for about a year. 
Mm. Um, I think I'd forget word, words after a little bit. It was amazing. I had a fantastic time. But oh. before we start talking about Dublin, which yeah. is in 2019, and yeah. confusing the poor listener. Mm-hmm. So Worldcon <laughs> is a... Now we're worried about confusing <laughs> the listener. It's too late. <laughs> Worldcon is a science fiction convention that's been around since ever... Uh, it's the world's oldest science fiction convention. Yes, it is. Um, I it was no, ah, don't even start, producer Al. Don't you even dare. Oh, Mark, Martin's going to fight you now. Um, he, he can do, but he's shorter than me. Um, so that, that would be Martin Smart. Yes. Uh, one of uh, we can describe him as a secret master of fandom. Oh, probably. Um, have we explained it to the yes. fandom? Yes. Anyway, uh, they're the people who organise these events. Um, so, so shall we sorry, review books. a book? I've <laughs> got a book here. Um, that but, seems radical. No, no yeah, that, that, that's not what this show's about. <laughs> Apparently, we're about Greg's pasties. So, uh, <laughs> oh God, in the book, I'm going to start a podcast on Greg's. <laughs> In the book nook, we have loads and loads of bookmarks because you know you you yes. tear through bookmarks quite literally when you read, read prestigious amount, um, and we've got a lot of bookmarks for uh, Ed Cox's The Cathedral of Known Things, and he did at Edge Lit, which is a book convention that you should definitely go to. He did a, a talk where he gave people random prompts to write stories as part of one of his workshops. So I got this with, um, it's a bookmark for the Cathedral of Unknown Things, and he'd written a prompt on the back. And the prompt is, time. I just grabbed this at random for my bookmark for a book called uh, A Man of Shadows. And gosh, was that appropriate and a bit weird. So Jeff Noon for, I just thought I'd mention that before I started. So Jeff Noon is known for being a bit weird as a writer. He is the weird fiction writer as far as I'm concerned. Uh, his first novel, Bert is about a boy who looks for who goes on a quest to find his sister who is also the love of his life after he accidentally traded her in a virtual reality environment for a weird squid thing because that's the sort of thing that just randomly happens all the time uh, the world has fallen invert the world has fallen apart and there's a thing called a feather which is literally a feather that you basically stick in your face and that allows you to enter into other worlds and there's a quest for the different sorts of feathers to take you to different lands. And yes, yes, the world of Vert, Vert is an entire metaphor for the Manchester drug scene of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yes, it absolutely is. Yes, it's absolutely surreal. Yes, there is one of the, I think it's Pollen of it, one of the, one of the books, there's a bit where everyone is, is got, Manchester United is playing another football team, but rather than the footballers, because they're all connected through virtual networks, um, it's the hearts and passions and dreams of people that are motivating the footballers to win. So it literally is the psyche of a city versus the psyche of a city. Okay. So that gives you an idea as to Jeff Noon's pedigree. Dog right. people to one side, which are totally invert. Um, we've got a rough idea of the sort of work that he does. So when I was handed uh, A Man of Shadows, the first, I would say about the first 100, word, 100 pages... Um, I suddenly realised I was reading a noir detective novel. Okay. It's quite obviously a noir detective, a man of shadows. Noir. Mm-hmm. And the the main character, John Nyquist, um, yes, he's called John Nyquist, very clever, is is a hard-boiled detective, detective of the Sam Spade proper film noir. He's hard-drinking. Um, but the world he lives in has messed with him completely. So the, the the world is this this kind of bizarre skyscraper hivey city place. And that that is as far as there's, there's nowhere beyond the world, it's just this world. So below the neon skies of Day Zone where the lights never go out and night has been banished, Lodi Private Eye John Nyquist takes takes on a teenage runaway case. His quest takes him from Day Zone into the permanent dark of Nocturna. I've just got the John Nyquist bit, sorry. So Essentially, this is a world where you have day zone, where it's always light, night zone, where it's always dark, and in the middle, dusk, where it's always flipping weird. Yeah. So, um, one, ah, well, interesting mm. point. So, what we've got here is extraordinary time weirdness, because you track time through night and day, don't yeah. you? 
So everyone has their own personal time zones. And at one point this becomes literal. People literally have their own personal time zones. Different areas have their own time zones. And at the start you're like, they have their own time zones. And then suddenly you realise, well, no, actually they have their own lumps of time. Yeah. Time time is weird. Time mm. has gone wrong. People's perceptions of time, time has gone wrong. People's understanding of time has gone wrong. And then we add time-altering drugs into the mix. Um, we, we add... Uh, there's a time is money. Obviously, if you have time, you can do stuff. So people are terrified of a time crash, which is where you know time gets wrong. Time time wefts and warps, wefts and warps and, and collapses. At which point there'll be an economic crash because because time. Um, the book starts off really slowly, like really slowly. Like a proper Sam Spade novel, we get to know Nyquist, we get to know the case of Eleanor, who's the girl on the run. We we slowly, surely get introduced to the the weird things that are in dusk, and around about whilst we start getting introduced to the world and the place and the pace, it's one of those books that it's a slow start. It's a very slow start, and then suddenly you realise it are heading towards a cliff. And then you hit the cliff, and it's literally a chapter page turn, and it's whoosh. Um, because what Noon is essentially doing is he's sitting there and he's going, I have established all of my concepts. I have built my world for you. Now watch me fly. Hmm. And he's, he, he spends a good chunk of the book just convincing you of the world and building the world and building the character and slowly but surely putting all these blocks in place. And it's beautifully written because he's always been a beautiful writer. And it's mesmerising. It's completely... It's one of those books that I I lost about two... Literally, I lose time reading this book. Um, and, you know, it's a book about time. And it's a book about night and day. And I found myself suddenly having to go to work. And that kind of... Uh, uh, oh, hang on. Uh, and then suddenly realising that I'd lost a chunk of time. I, I the, the amount of times that I have almost missed my train because of this book. Um, it's... He's Jeff Noon. It's really... Really odd, really weird. The cover, by the way, that we have on this version is the one that will go in, which is the Escher style view of things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just found it... It's very clever. Eleanor Bale is very interesting. The, oh, there's a serial killer, obviously. Quicksilver, the serial killer. Um, the murder, it starts with a really shocking murder. So it just opens up and you're like, how? What? And it's like people just wandering around and then suddenly someone is dead. Oh, okay. Like horribly, horribly killed. Suddenly someone is dead. And you're like, that's, that's, that's really upsetting. Um... Is it a return to form for Jeff Noon? Yeah, I mean it, it's. Uh, this is fairly short review because I don't want to spoil it. It's difficult with those, isn't it? Where you're like, I want to tell you these things, but I can't tell you. Th- but Noon does a thing similar to Clive Barker, where he talks about an expression of individuality and personality through the things that are different and wrong with okay. a person. The main character is very broken in many different ways. Um, I think he's supposed to be sympathetic. I don't think he is, but that's me. As a full as a noir story, perfect. It works perfectly well. If you were to pull out all the strange elements and all the unusual bits of the writing, you'd be wasting your time. But if you were to pull all those out, it'd be a perfectly stable, perfectly working noir story. As soon as you add those bizarre bits, it's really good. Is it as good as Vert? Yes, it's better. It's better than Vert. It's much okay. better than Vert. Uh, is it as good as Automated Alice? It's less clever. Uh, but uh, automated, uh, automated Alice was so clever it disappeared up its own bottom. Um, you really like it, though, don't you? Like, you automated like Alice, Alice is one of my favorite, one of my favorite kind of showing off semantic books ever. Um, one of my favorite Alice adaptations as well. Um, so, yes, is it Return to Form to Jeff Noon? I don't think he ever went away, but if you're looking for something that's as good as is better than verse and is more engaging than this, 
is it the book most likely to win an award? Yes. Okay. Uh, is it a book most likely to be converted into some sort of movie by some very clever um, Christopher Nolan-esque director? I'd hope so, to be honest. It's got the elements in there. Uh, it's not been written... It's not like a model of Ready Player One where it's been written of stuff to turn that into a movie. It's just clever enough to do... To, and visual enough that it would work. Um, how you would do the various lights and things, I'm sure you could work out a way if you were a clever enough director. Um, should you read it? Yes. Um, will you enjoy it if you don't like film noir? Probably not, so maybe not. Um, but why don't you like film noir? What's wrong with you? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you can contact the show on at Radio Bookworm, which I think I've said way too many times this time around. Um, and obviously you can find us on Starburst Magazine as well. You can subscribe to us via the Monkey Spanner. Should we go and talk to an author? A lovely author. Yeah, it's sort of a lovely author. Richard K. Morgan, welcome to Brave New Words. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, uh, the the last time we had you, uh, the show was called... Um, the bookworm uh, we now have a, a shiny new name um and one of the things we didn't actually talk about because we talked about all your shiny new stuff but we didn't talk about altered carbon and for some reason that's on everyone's lips right now can yeah, you I can't imagine why <laughs> can you can you tell us a bit about the the journey from uh the start of the book originally and its journey to a um netflix tv series um, yeah, well, it, it uh, the book book's been under option for its whole life, basically. It got optioned for movie uh, at more or less the same time it was published, and that that option was with Warner Brothers and uh, Silver Pictures, and it ran for seven years, which was a very nice little earner for me. Uh, but it never got anywhere close to being made, and finally Warner Brothers got fed up paying and and pulled out. And at this point, I became aware of the fact that Lita Calagridis, uh, who obviously been a you know sort of significant um, movie maker in in Hollywood for some considerable time, that she had wanted to option the book back in 2002, but she missed. She was beaten to the punch by by Warner Brothers, and she at the time approached my Hollywood agent and just said, "Look, they aren't going to make this because they don't understand it. And <laughs> they don't get what it's about, and it will. They won't be able to." To turn it into a, a movie. Uh, so when when the option folds and it will, uh, come and talk to me, and I would love to option it. And yeah, that's it. it, it actually, exactly what happened. So as soon as Warner Brothers let go of the option, which was I think sometime in two thousand nine, uh, Lisa Calderini showed up and said, "Yeah, I'm very happy to option it." Um, she she took it on with her production company that she formed with uh, the same people who had produced Shutter Island, and said about trying to create a, a movie script that would do it justice and that in itself proved very difficult and you know first and foremost the script the screenplays were coming in really long so you know I think her first first completed one was like three hours ten minutes or something uh, she got it down to two hours forty and I mean those are lengths that nobody making a science fiction movie is going to is going to sit still for and the problem was there, there were probably you know leave, leave aside genre directors there were probably only four or five directors full stop in Hollywood who could command sufficient budget to get that movie made, you know, to, to actually, you know, to say, yeah, we're making a science fiction thriller and it's three hours, ten minutes long. You know, I mean, that it was anathema. And so we kind of stalled on that and, and she, you know, she kept trying, she kept trying and, and went to the, 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 the four names on that list and unfortunately we couldn't get any of them because they were all busy doing other stuff. Uh, and that's the point at which most Hollywood players sort of go, well, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish. Um, she, you know, drift off and go off and do something else. And she wasn't having it. She, um, she, was a, she told me back in 2010 that it was a, you know, passion project for her. Um, she also told me at the time, interestingly enough, that uh, she wasn't sure if she could get it made, uh, which was very refreshing to hear. I mean, I was, I remember talking to my literary agent after I had a phone call with with Lita. And the agent said to me, so how do you feel? So I said, well, she told me that, that you know, she's not sure she can get it made. So, yeah, we're definitely going with her. And, <laughs> because you don't hear that out of Hollywood very often. You know, Hollywood is usually full on hype. Yeah, it's awesome. We love the book. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be And then it all just goes away. And I think one of the things about Lita that I came to respect over the, the time that she had the option was she always under-promised. You know, she never 
I can't get it made as a movie. How do you feel about long form TV? And and I uh, I basically said, yeah, well, you know, whatever works. I, 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 the point was that having seen what had happened to long form TV over the course of the previous decade, I was quite enthusiastic about it because I, I thought, yeah, there'd be so much really good material coming out of, of HBO and, and latterly Netflix and various other um, productions. There was this sense that uh, this was where the action was. Increasingly, you were hearing that it was where all the good directors and writers wanted to work. It was, you know, that the, the, they had the middle ground that used to be staked out with sort of modest budget movies in Hollywood, that's gone now. And you've got either low budget indie or you've got blockbuster and there's nothing in the middle. And all the people who used to work in that middle, they've all gone off to work in TV. So, it, you know, I was quite enthusiastic about that. And uh, lo and behold, yeah, she set it up and it, it turned around really fast. As well. I mean, she got David Ellison on board at Skydance. Apparently he's a fan of the book as well. And uh, yeah, very, very swiftly, I think within within less than a year of making that decision, uh, we had the show. You're a famously flexible writer. You've got experience in, in novels, comics, video games, and so on. Um, yeah. How tempted were you to be involved with the script, and what was your involvement with the script process? Well, the, the contract that I got from, from um, Lita uh, was basically that I was on board as a consultant. So I was getting a royalty per episode, but I was also getting a fee per episode as a consultant. And the, the, the contract specified in the terms were the, the words of the, the contract was something like, this will amount to significant contribution. So in other words, they're saying, this is not a fob, this is, we're not fobbing you off, this is not just a, a way of, of, you know, a way of doing the contract, we actually want your input. And that proved to be the case. She was, she was on my case very early on, as soon as she had scripts, she was, uh, she was saying, look, show you the script, let me know what you think, she's very keen to hear how you feel about it. Um, and I say at one point she did, she even asked me to do a little bit of rewriting on a couple of scripts that, were, that hadn't yet fully shaped up. And yeah, I have felt significantly involved pretty much from the go. Uh, I, so I went out to watch them shoot some of the show back in February last year, been out to LA to talk to the writer's room a couple of times. And yeah, there's very much a feeling that, that um, we want to hear what you've got to say. We, you know, we may then choose to ignore it, but we want to hear what you've got to say. And uh, I, I've chosen not to, I mean, I'm more than to write one of the scripts, but I actually turned it down because my feeling was that um, things were rolling really fast and I'm not a screenwriter. I mean, I would have needed to skill up and I didn't want to get in the way, basically. I, I you know, it was, it was already building steam and I, my sense of it was that if I got involved as an actual writer for one of the episodes, that was just going to slow things down for everybody. So I, I chose not to do that. Uh, it's something I can maybe revisit further down the line, you know, when maybe um, get to season two, season three, maybe. Uh, but I've been happy to, you know, to stand back and to be the sort of proud parent, as it were, you know, uh, let it develop and and offer offer, you know, advice and suggestions when when requested. But otherwise, just let them get on with it. I mean, these are very highly skilled professionals. But an amazing crew that Lita assembled, and uh, I had every confidence in them. So, you know, question of stand back and watch the fireworks. Are there any elements of the TV production that you feel are that just you were like, oh my goodness, they kept that in from the book? And conversely, are there any elements that you're glad they left out, or elements that you're kind of a little bit sad that they, they they've cut already? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I the thing is, it first of all, the thing is that almost everything that's in the book is in the show. Now, sometimes that's in the, where they, they have literally abstracted a scene and it, it plays out almost line for line the way the scene plays out in the book. And that happened a lot. There are a lot of scenes where uh, you're watch, essentially watching um, a, you know, a visual format of, of a scene that I wrote myself back in the putting the book together. So that's gratifying. Uh, but what you also find is there are a lot of stuff that's in the book and it, it is in the show, but it comes at you at some odd angle. So it might be something that in the book was a throwaway comment. I mean, obviously the book is first person, so there's a lot of discursive kind of narrative going on. And they, they've taken things that Kovacs kind of mentions in passing and thrown those things out again and actually given them some weight, given them some heft, created scenes around them. And so you're actually getting stuff from the book coming at you at a different angle. That is fascinating uh, because it's like, oh, 
never I didn't really I never envisaged it like that but actually that's cool so the end result of this is that you've got I it is a it's it's the closest thing to a totally faithful adaptation of the book that you could possibly imagine really um, it is incredible how much of the book is in there I'm, I'm really hard put to think of anything in the book that hasn't been transplanted in the show in some shape or form um, and it forms a coherent whole which is different in some significant fashions to the book but it doesn't matter because it's it's coherent in a, in another in a whole different way um, and it, it hangs together in its own way so you can't start I mean it's impossible to start picking apart and say I like that change I don't like this change I like that change I don't like this change it, because it's it's you know it's meaningless you, you, it, it coheres it has a building it has a strength one of the reviews was saying that it's Initially, the show is quite confusing because there's a lot going on, and then it gathers weight as it goes on, and it builds and builds, and the back half of the show is, is, is sort of the payoff for all the investment that you've put into the first few episodes when you're trying just trying to keep up. And, and yeah, it's, it's, in that sense, it is its own creature. Um, so it, I can't, you know, it, I can't hand on heart actually sort of point to something and go, oh, well, yeah, I really didn't like that, or I wish they put this in, or I wish they hadn't put that in, because... Yeah, I don't know. It's like it's like saying, you know, I wish my son had ended up with with my wife's green eyes or something like that. It, it's it's uh, it just doesn't it doesn't work. On a related note, the actual production is visually stunning. Um, in your mind's eye, did it look like that? And how close has it? How much has it changed your mind's eye of this world? No, it's it's very close. I mean, it's interesting. Again, some of the the show has taken a, a little bit of flack in some quarters from as being derivative of Blade Runner, you know, that it's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it looks like Blade Runner. Well, actually, that is incredibly accurate to source material then, because I was massively influenced by Blade Runner myself. When I wrote the book, the visual, especially the cityscapes, Blade Runner was very much in my mind when I wrote this. It was, that was the, those were the images that I was seeing playing in my head. So the fact that the show has taken that and run with it, um, is, is, you know, to me, that's a positive, because I say, yeah, they've absolutely, they've picked up on the vibe that I wanted the book to have, and they've reproduced that visually. Um, and yes, of course, we've come full circle because it, it does look like it. A lot of a lot of the elements of it look like it. But Christ, what's wrong with that? You know. <laughs> How do you respond to comments about nudity in the show? About what? Sorry. Nudity. Uh, I don't give a fuck. I mean, I it, the thing is, one of the things that I, I've heard quite interesting watching like when Joel Kinnaman has been interviewed about this one of the things he keeps reiterating is that this is a, a hard R show it's, it's R rated and I think that is that's a, a vital thing a vital factor because I think the problem is science fiction for, for way too long it seems to me screen science fiction anyway has there's been this unspoken assumption hovering over it that it is you know for kids so so much of it has it's not that there isn't you know violence or, or or other other type um, elements in it, but though they're always toned down, there's always a way of dealing with them that, that kind of re reduces the intensity, if you like. Um, and what you've got with Alter Carbon uh, is is basically just a willingness to say this is a show for adults, and if you aren't comfortable with that, then you shouldn't watch it. And uh, so, so as far as the nudity goes, I mean, I don't give a shit. I mean, it's people have bodies under our. I, one of the Muppets says, "Isn't it? Do you realise that under our clothes we are all naked?" Uh, it's it, 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 obviously that it's, it's, it's um, a story that deals with the idea of human flesh as a disposable commodity. Of course, there's going to be nudity. Of course, it's going to involve uh, seeing naked, naked men and women. But for God's sake, I mean, it's the 21st century. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's only this weird YA soft play area vibe that has attached to so much of, of science fiction over the last 20 or so years that has that makes it seem to stand out. I mean, it actually doesn't stand out. I mean, if you think back to late 70s, early 80s, look at something like Alien or Blade Runner, that was very adult in inflection. You know, there, was, there were no issues in Blade Runner with, with, with nakedness. There was, there, was no, there was no sense that, there, oh, there are things we can't put on the screen here. Uh, and we seem to have lost that vibe. It seems to, there seems to have been this rather plasticky, po-faced, for kids kind of vibe going on, even when the science fiction supposedly isn't for kids. And and I think this show, along with a bunch of other stuff, is kind of kicking that into touch. It's like hell no, you know, this is this is an adult adult show for adults. Uh, 
you wouldn't be surprised to see lots of nudity in The Sopranos um, or The Wire. Uh, why should you be surprised to see it in a science fiction show? Game of Thrones saw a plethora of fantasy clones following it. Do you think we're gonna? Do you think we're gonna see? And I hesitate to use the word, but do you think we're gonna see more cyberpunk on TV? Uh, I, that would be great. I mean, I would love to see more cyberpunk on TV. I mean, I think it's, it, 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 you know, I can remember the impact that William Gibson's work made on me back in the late seventies, early eighties when I was reading it, and I would love to see something like that because I, because I think there's an inherent critique in in cyberpunk the way it, the way it attacks the future. Uh, that I think we desperately need. I, I would like to see that. I um, so yeah. I mean, it would be great if that happened. I mean, whether, you know, whether it will or not, I, it, it's too early to tell. But I would love to see more of that. Yeah. Well, but I would love to see more of that wholeheartedly because I think there is a very real danger always with these things that what starts out as a, a commentary and a, a kind of a, a meaningful engagement ends up being just wallpaper. Uh, so you end up with a visual aesthetic that people like, that people have seen in previous things, but there's nothing informing it. It's just, it's just wallpaper. It's just, it's just pretty to look at. So what I wouldn't like to see is a whole bunch of cyberpunk shows that basically take the the, the aesthetic of Alter Carbon or the aesthetic of Blade Runner, however you want to frame it, and then just throw that onto the screen. And, and what's behind it is very fractal and anodyne and 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 YA. I wouldn't like that. I would. I don't think. I think that would be a bit of a shame. But if we're going to see genuinely adult science fiction, genuinely the the the, the, the sort of the vertigo of human existence, uh, you know, because the, the, that's one of the things with Gibson's stories that I sometimes gets missed is they were full of grief and loss and the sort of the rage at the heart of, of what it is to be human. And I, I think those things very often get missed in mainstream entertainment generally. It's almost as if we think, well, people don't really want to be dealing with that. Uh, give them something softer. And I know I would love to see the edge come back on. More shows like this that, that put a genuine edge on. on so what's next for you? For me, uh, well, <laughs> I am desperately struggling to tape down the last corner of, of um, a science fiction novel called Thin Air, which has been a long, a long while in the incubation period, and uh, it is nearly done. Um, I can get that another right, and um, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, that's going to wrap up in the next couple of weeks, and then I will get it off to my editors, and we can start sort of um, finessing it, tidying it up. That should come out some July this year. It's a uh, it's a it's set in the same universe as uh, as Black Man was, um, albeit 100 150 years from now, and on Mars instead of on Earth. But it's a lot of the, the assumptions are similar. I think anyone who likes the Kovacs books is going to feel quite at home in thin air. It, it has a very simple feeling to it. It's first person narrative, bad tempered protagonist who will go violent at the drop of a hat. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it should be a nice homecoming for the people who've missed my science fiction. And um, just some silly questions, just to finish off, if you don't mind. So, um, Simpsons or Futurama? Futurama, absolutely. Every time. Uh, Apple Macs or Windows? Oh, Mac, Mac. I've been a Mac. No, I've been a Mac user for ooh, several decades now. I, don't, I, 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 you know, I, I am Windows com, um, compliant, but I don't, I don't like it if I can avoid it. Um, Do Doctor Who or Back to the Future? Ah, uh, that's an interesting juxtaposition. Um, don't know. That's a tough one because uh, I only ever saw the first of the Back to the Futures. I really liked it. Uh, I never saw the others, and I heard they weren't that good. Um, Doctor Who was an artifact of my childhood. I loved the Tom Baker period, especially. Uh, I have a feeling if I went back and watched them now, I might realise that they weren't quite as cool as I remember them, as is very often the case with childhood stuff. So um, I honestly don't know where to pitch that one. I'm afraid I couldn't tell you if it were if it were um, that Edwardian period that Do that Tom Baker did. Then I guess I would probably settle for Doctor Who. And, and two more to go: Macbeth or Fellow? Macbeth every time. Um, I love him. He's 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 a fantastic. There is the ending of Macbeth when the realization comes that he's been fucked over by supernatural powers and he's going to die anyway. Uh, might as well die with your shields up. Uh, I, I love that. I, I remember doing that as a school play when I was about 11 years old and, and really warming to that concept even then. Uh, so yeah, Macbeth every time. Othello's alright, but Othello depends upon upon everybody in the play being stupid, apart from Iago, 
in order for the plot to function. If you, if, you know, just one or two of the people around Othello have the nous to actually go, uh, hang on, did anyone mention to you that this is happening? Then the entire plot collapses. So I, I find, I find Othello unconvincing as a, as a, as a drama, whereas I say, I think Macbeth is anything but. Uh, and finally, the truth or beauty? Uh, well, I think Keats said that truth was beauty, didn't he? <laughs> Richard K. Morgan, thank you very much for your time. You are very welcome. It was great talking to you. Thank you. They were lovely. They were lovely. What a lovely author. It should be cool. We can do. Yes. So it's goodbye from me and Fortune. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye from me. Bye! Bye!